right, we're going to be in John chapter 15, picking it up in verse 18 today, John 15, 18. If you're just joining us over the past few weeks, we have been really from chapter 13 to chapter 17, working through what most would call Jesus's upper room discourse. He has been talking about, about love, talking about the church and what is to come after he goes back to heaven. But today he makes a difficult pivot from love to hate, and he warns his disciples about the trouble that is to come. And essentially what he's talking about in this passage is persecution. And for most of us, we have limited or no experience personally with persecution. I mean, chances are we've been made fun of, somebody's looked crossways at us, somebody's jeered at our faith. But most of us in this room have not been truly persecuted. But that doesn't mean that it's not a real issue for Christians around the world. In fact, just a few years ago, a study was done that said as many as 8,000 Christians are killed each year as a direct result of their faith in Jesus. Another study said 111 countries either restrict or are hostile to Christianity. And it is reported that more than 100 million Christians are suffering some type of persecution around the globe right now. So this is a very real issue, even if it's not top of mind for us. And of course, Jesus knew that it would be trouble for his disciples after he left. And so that's why on the home stretch of his teaching here in the upper room, he goes out of his way to address this. And because of that, I actually just have really kind of one point tonight, and it deals with that. So let me go ahead and give it to you, and then we'll work through the verses. By way of organization... I would say that Jesus' disciples will experience persecution after he is gone. It's kind of the main idea in this passage. And he minces no words with it. Look right here in verse 18. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And that word hate here is going to come up eight different times in this passage. Hate or hatred. And so this is clearly something that Jesus feels compelled to speak about. Also key in on that word if there. He's not using it in the way that we often do, that this is something that could happen. He's speaking more of this as an eventual inevitability. It is coming. And then if you look through the rest of these verses, which we will, he really kind of explains why this is going to be the case. The first one here is obvious to us in verse 18. It's because of the definite connection between Jesus and his disciples. If they hate you... It's because they hated me first. He's going to use that same logic again in just a moment. Look at verse 19. He said, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, a couple things to notice there. First is the way he uses the word world. He's not talking about a globe. He's not talking about the idea of individuals in the world. He's talking about the notion of the world system, the cosmos, if you will. And he's saying that believers have been called out to be separate from that world system, and that's part of the basis of its hatred against them. Now, let's think a little bit more about being called out from the world. The idea there is really what you see in 1 Peter 2.9. But you're a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so the idea here, this is the doctrine of election on display. This is the calling out of God's people from the, uh, from the, from the masses. And he states to them the piece of their identity here, Peter does. It's, it's wonderful. The chosen race, the royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So we will belong to God. But we are a people of purpose that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what Jesus is saying here, to use Peter's words, is that calling out comes at a cost. That the world operates on its principles and heads toward its destination, but God's people are fish swimming in another direction, if you will. And part of the reason we are still here is to proclaim the goodness and the greatness and the glory of God in this world. So when we think about that, I think the application should be a couple of different pieces. The first thing is, this is a gospel amazement moment for us. A gospel astonishment moment for us to step back and recognize that we have no merit of our own, that we did nothing to deserve this calling out that has happened, and yet God in his infinite mercy and kindness led us to repentance, and now we have a mission to proclaim his excellency in the world. And then on top of that, as I mentioned just a moment ago, we have all of this multifaceted identity, a chosenness, a, a royalty to us, a, a holiness about us. All of that should cause us to not step back and go, man, look how great we are. But should cause us to look up and say, look how great God is. We did nothing to deserve this, and he has lavished all of this upon us. Now, another piece of the application here, and we'll make this again as we go forward, but in light of what he says here in verse 19, that the world is going this direction and God's people are going a different direction, we cannot be surprised when there is some static, when there is some trouble, when there is some difficulty, when there is some persecution, because the world does not know us in the sense that Jesus is describing. And finally, I think part of the application needs to be the constant reminder that is a refrain throughout the scriptures to be about proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called us, of telling all the men and women, boys and girls that we can about the Jesus that saved us that can save them. They will turn from their sins and trust in Christ. So let's let our immense gratitude for the gospel lead to a continual sense of going to share that same gospel. Now, verse 20. Jesus says this, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And what Jesus is doing here is he's using what is called an a fortiori statement. That's a mouthful. But what he's talking about here is he's saying what is true for the greater is true for the lesser. That if they hated me, I'm the boss of this whole thing. Well, surely they're going to hate you, the followers of me. It's also a compelling word that is used here for persecute. A.T. Robertson points this out, said that it carries with it a sense of chasing like a wild beast 
So the persecution that they would endure had a pursuant element to it. And again, surely our brothers and sisters around the world right now, they could tell stories like this. But here for most of us, persecution wears a different face. It is more of comments. It is more sometimes even of an indifference. People just don't take us seriously. But again, for some, there is real persecution even here in the United States over different issues. Historically, this has proven true throughout the centuries since Jesus went back to heaven. Great example of this, 1937, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed at the end of World War II in 1945 in a German concentration camp, almost prophetically wrote about what would happen to him in his classic, The Cost of Discipleship. He said, suffering is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Luther reckons suffering among the true mar uh, marks of the true church. So discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and that is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. Other parts of the Bible pick this up as well. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Then 1 Peter 4.12 and 13 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But in so far, rejoice as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So time after time after time, page after page after page of the Bible, we are warned in a loving way that persecution will come our way at some point. Now, let me make a couple of other comments here about persecution because this is kind of one of those things that we, we need to think this all the way through. Because if we're honest, sometimes we are persecuted because we're dumb. It's not always because we're holy. And some of us, I won't ask you to raise your hand to tell your story, but every once in a while we can get off track and say things that were foolish or behave in ways that were foolish, foolish and kind of get ribbed for it or capped for it in some way and call it persecution when really it's just bad people skills. And so we need to think through being as wise and as shrewd as we can and also know that when we live out authentic faith in the world, because we are not of the world, trouble will come. So there's that that, that needle that we're trying to thread here. We don't need to look for extra trouble and make it worse because enough trouble is going to come our way. So I think you can pick up what I'm putting down there and think through the idea of it. And we don't want to go looking for trouble because trouble is going to find us. Let me also say this. It's also complicated because sometimes persecution is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing. Because there's that idea out there, too. If we're doing something right, well, then bad things are going to happen. Well, sometimes, but sometimes not. And so it, it's a complicated thing to think through this. But one of the pieces of, call it, practical wisdom that I've been given over the years that I want to pass on 
is that we want to embrace the tension of being in the world, but not of the world. We want to be in the world, but not of the world. And this is the kind of thing where we want to be good missionaries, if you think about it that way. And we need to be conversant in the culture. We need to think through what does it look like to live as a native in the village that we live in, whether it's here in Williamson County or somewhere else. But at the same time, we need to have countercultural values. We're going to believe in different things than, than some of the folks here believe and so on and so forth. And again, in the spirit of what Jesus is saying here, we need to know that just being a Christian and being faithful to the word of God is going to attract some hostility. It's unavoidable. So there really is a sense in which if we are doing the right things, it will attract some trouble. But again, we want to think through the way we live out our faith, the way we talk about our faith, and the way we walk out our faith. D.A. Carson has a, a good quip on this that would serve us well as well. He said this, he said, Former rebels who have by the grace of the king been won back to loving allegiance to their rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion. So what Jesus is communicating to them and by his spirit through his word communicating to us some 2,000 years later is don't be surprised when this inevitable persecution comes upon you. They hated me. At times they're going to hate you. You're not part of the world. You're going in a different direction. It's going to generate some turbulence. So stay the course. That's what Jesus is leading them toward. But before he gets to that, he gets to this. Look at verse 21. He says, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name. And then he's going to list some of them in just a little bit. Because they do not know him who sent me. Now, I don't want to make too much hay of this, but I want to point out yet again this inextricable link that exists between Jesus and God the Father. Remember, we've pulled that thread throughout the entirety of the Gospel of John, this sense of authority that is not from Jesus himself. It has been conferred upon him by his Father, and he keeps saying it and saying it and saying it again, that he is a man on a mission, if you will. He has been sent by God with God's authority. And that gets us to verse 22. And here he says, if I had not come and spoken to them, the them is all the people that he's preached to, the, the Jewish establishment, so on and so forth, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. So he's come and he's preached the truth to them. And now they are account accountable, what he's saying here, for the truth that they have suppressed and denied. Whoever hates me hates my father also. So again, that same connection, that inextricable link. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. There it is again. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So again, this is the same idea that we saw, I think, three weeks ago. That Jesus' mission was manifested by both his words and his deeds. He preached the truth. He was the truth. And then he showed them the truth of his kingdom. 
And so he's saying, I gave them 10,000 opportunities to believe. I showed them miracles right in front of them. And still they hated me, as he says here, in a fulfillment of prophecy, without cause. But this notion of holding up the truth and people not believing it is a great illustration from a man named H.A. Ironside that illustrates this point. I'll just read it to you. Years ago, at the time of the opening of inland Africa by missionaries, the wife of an African chief happened upon a mission station. The missionary had a little mirror hung up on the tree outside of his home. The woman, as she passed by, happened to glance into it. She had come straight out of her pagan environment and had never seen the hideous paintings on her face or her hardened features. Now, gazing at her own face, she was startled. She asked the missionary, who is that horrible-looking person inside the tree? It's not the tree, said the missionary. That glass is reflecting your own face. Well, she couldn't believe it until she was holding the mirror in her own hand. And when she had understood, she said to the missionary, I must have the glass. How much will you sell it for? Well, the missionary did not want to sell the mirror. But she insisted so strongly that in the end, he thought it would be better to sell it to her and avoid some trouble. So the price was set and she took the glass and she said fiercely, I will never have this making faces at me again. And she threw it down and she broke it to pieces. Isn't that illustrative of exactly what Jesus is describing here? He came and he proclaimed the truth of the kingdom of God. He showed them miracle after miracle after miracle. He preached to them the wonderful good news of the kingdom, and they wouldn't have it. But they didn't break a mirror. The Son of God was broken for us through their disobedience. But we all know how that story ends. It does not end with the broken mirror of Jesus. It ends with the exalted Christ reigning today. But isn't that a poignant story of what all of us, apart from the grace of God, can do when we're confronted with the truth? We don't want to hear it. We want to break the mirror. So let's not look at these other people in judgment. Let's look at ourselves soberly. And let's be thankful for the grace of God. And let's pray that we would be soft-hearted to the truth and not mirror breakers in response to it. Now, here in verse 26, Jesus takes a little pivot again. We'll talk a lot about this next week, but he kind of mentions this at this point, so I want to mention it. <clears throat> he says, but when the Helper comes, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So what he's saying here is the Holy Spirit will help the disciples in their persecution. I think there's probably some good news here that was for them and for us because you hear this and we all have that little twinge within us where we say, oh goodness, if real persecution comes our way, what are we going to do? Are we going to fold like a house of cards or are we going to tell the truth about Jesus and whatever happens, happens? He's saying here the Holy Spirit will help us in those moments to continue to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out. But let me give you some further good news. 
He doesn't just help us in moments of great stress and duress. He helps us in all the other moments as well, if we'll let him. If we'll lean on him, if we'll listen for him, if we will seek his power and presence in our lives, the Spirit will help us bear witness about Jesus, whether in persecution or in moments of happiness. So come back next week, and you'll hear more about what the Holy Spirit's going to do to help us as well. But let's finish up right here in verses 1 through 4 in chapter 16. He says, I have said all these things, so everything that he's talked about tonight and some of what came before, to keep you from falling away. And then Jesus gets scary specific. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father. There's that connection again. Nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I have told them to you. So let's work backwards here. Jesus is warning them prophetically here. There's going to be a moment when, when the, uh, the inmates take over the proverbial prison. That's what happens. And we see this in the coming weeks. The disciples are going to be in trouble for their faith in Jesus. But he loves them enough to tell them that it's coming, to warn them so that they might begin to prepare themselves and they might remember that the Holy Spirit is going to be there to help them. And why are they going to do this? Remember, we're working backwards here. Verse 3, because they don't know God and they don't know Jesus. And it's going to be so bad, he says in verse 2, that these people who are going to kill the Son of God think that they're doing God's work. You know, there's people still in the world today that think they are doing God's work by killing other people. It's happening right now overseas. And that's part of the danger of religion apart from a relationship with God through Jesus Christ alone. If you follow any path other than Jesus Christ alone, it can end up with you killing people and you think you're doing God's bidding. Friends, Jesus Christ is our only hope. He's our only hope to save us from that kind of extreme thinking. And he's our only hope to save us from ourselves. We need the Jesus that is helping these disciples tonight. And by his kindness... We have him. By his grace, we have him. And this Jesus was so strong and so powerful and so specific. Look back at verse 1 and verse, the first part of verse 2 here. That he warned them about one of the things that they would fear the most. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to us because of where we are culturally. But for a Jew to be kicked out of their synagogue... This would have been something of extreme dread for them because it cut them off from all of their cherished heritage and it was a threat that the early Jewish Christians, kind of this, this period where they're coming out of Judaism and Jesus is there, that's something that they would have all feared. You think about the, the, the high school book, many of us read the scarlet letter with the A that, that the lady had to wear. That was nothing compared to what these people would have had to endure. 
And Jesus is saying, some of you, you're going to have to endure that, but I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be for you. I'm going to be with you through the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be okay. So let's pull all this together. This is not exactly a feel-good kind of message, but it's a needful one. It's one of explanation and one of preparation. Because I wish I could tell you that everything from here until Jesus comes back is just going to be rosy for us. But I feel like that would be intellectually dishonest. I don't know where it's going to go in America. It may not get much worse. It may get much, much worse. But if we read the tea leaves of what seems to be happening around the world, we're not trending in a good direction. And we need to take passages like this in the spirit of comfort and also in the spirit of preparation that Jesus offers it to us. We serve a Savior that loves us enough and is in control enough and is wise enough to let his disciples know that it's not all going to be smooth sailing. Part of the scandal of the prosperity gospel that is so alive in our cultural moment is because how do you square that with a passage like this? Now, thankfully, all of the Christian life is not persecution for us. But there is trouble in our lives and on the horizon that is specifically tied to us following Jesus. And so in these moments, I think we need to hear this and it needs to kind of make us sit up straight and strengthen us a bit. But it also needs to drive us to the feet of the Lord Jesus. Because if there was ever anything or anyone in this world worth being persecuted for, it's the one that was persecuted for us. And we will have strength to stand within our persecution because he had strength to stand within his. We have the resource that we need because Jesus is that resource. We can and will be persecuted because he was persecuted for us. Friends, Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. And he will help us and he will be near to us and he will sustain us with whatever comes our way. Friends, let's take a moment and let's pray and ask the Lord to give us strength in light of this passage. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are thankful to have gathered around under your word tonight. It's a tougher word, but it's a needful word. And so, Lord, I pray that from the weakest to the strongest in this room, that you would give us gospel courage. Not to simply try to be tough spiritually, but instead to do the opposite. To admit our abject weakness but cling to you, the God of infinite strength. Lord, we thank you that you 
indeed loved us enough and were wise enough to warn us of what would come. And Lord, at the same time, we're so thankful that you called us to yourself. That we have been called out from this world. Lord, may we be wise in how we live in it. May we proclaim your excellencies within it. And most of all, may we cling to you and maybe worship and honor you for who you are and what you've done. And we pray all this in, the, in Jesus' mighty name.